good evening to you. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you for this week and to open up God's Word and to study together. If you've got your New Testaments with you, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, that's where we're going to begin our study this evening, and it's where we're going to spend a lot of our time together, Luke chapter 19. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you. Reagan mentioned, I think I was supposed to be here pre-COVID. That didn't quite work out, and uh, we were able to get it made up now. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. I appreciate you guys having me, and I, I look forward to uh, a good series of studies going on through through Sunday. Appreciate the uh, presence of so many tonight, so many people who are so very, very dear to me, who have meant so much to me over the course of my life, one of whom led our prayer this evening. My aunt is in the audience as well. Uh, Mentors, friends, brethren, thank you so much for being here tonight. It means a lot to me. And he entered and was passing through Jericho, chapter 19 and verse 1 reads, Behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich, and he was trying to see who Jesus was. And he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your home. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give it back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. When the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The story of Zacchaeus, right? If we can remember back to Bible school days, Bible class days, we remember the song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He's up in the tree. I'm going to your house this day, right? So many lessons are in this story for us. I hope we can bring out a few of them tonight. But to start with, let's just set our background here. Let's talk a little bit about who Zacchaeus was. He's a resident of the city of Jericho. At least that's what we're led to believe here in the text. Interestingly, if you read around Luke 19, this is where Bartimaeus and his companion were healed. That's going to come out more as we go through our study this evening. He's a chief tax collector. Uh, By some Jewish citizens, he probably was viewed as some sort of a mob boss, employing subordinates who were known to extort and to steal. In fact, when we go back and read some of the teachings of John the Baptist earlier in the Gospel accounts, we see just that very thing that those who worked in the, in the role of tax collectors and subordinates there were known for their thievery, known for their dishonesty. Maybe that described Zacchaeus to a degree, or maybe he was just unfairly lumped in with that crowd. Chapter 19 and verse 2 would tell us he is a man of great wealth. He was rich, but he was also a short man, verse 3 would tell us. And he was a man with a reputation, right? Verse 7, everyone began to grumble saying Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
that he had a reputation, I think, might be worthy of just a couple of moments of, of, uh, of a little bit of a deep dive here. You've got two basic views of Zacchaeus here. Uh, supported by two different readings of the text. If you're reading from the New King James Bible, maybe you notice that it reads a little bit different than the New American Standard Bible. If you're reading from the New American Standard Bible, it seems more like Zacchaeus probably had a well-deserved reputation. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. If you're reading from the New King James Version, it, it seems that perhaps Zacchaeus was somebody who was unfairly judged by his fellow citizens Lord, I, I give, I do this, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. So is either somebody who is pledging to make good on what he has done wrong, or he is somebody who is saying, I haven't intentionally done anything wrong, and when I discover that I might have done something wrong, I take the steps necessary to fix it. Jump down with me to verse 10, though which reads similarly in both the New King James and the New American Standard Bibles. Uh, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And if we're going to let verse 10 kind of guide us through the rest of, or th through the, the, the earlier part of the story there, I'd submit to you that, that, that maybe the New American Standard Bible gets us more on course with the narrative that verse 10 reveals here. That here is somebody who, who had sinned. Here is somebody who was dishonest. Somebody who, who probably had a well-deserved reputation. But it's also somebody who undergoes a remarkable transformation after an encounter with Jesus. And that's some of what we want to talk about this evening. He wants to see Jesus, doesn't he? You're there in chapter 19... And in verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Have you ever been somewhere where you wanted to see somebody? Have you ever done something like Zacchaeus did here? I can remember going one time to watch the Cowboys play. Full disclosure, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. How I grew up in Arkansas and ended up a Buffalo Bills fan, I don't know, but I've always loved the Bills. That being said, I don't have a great affinity for the Cowboys, but went to a game there in, in Arlington. Got there a little bit early, so we see a crowd of people over near one of the tunnels. We all go over there. What are they doing? Watching the players drive in. Try to see somebody, right? Try to wave it. Just to, just to see them, right? And so you try to maneuver along the fence. You try to get a glimpse. You see all of these cars that cost way more than what I get paid in a year. Pulling in, you're, you're trying to wave, see, is, is that Tony Romo? Uh, is, is that... <laughs> Tony's it. That's what I got for you. That's what I remember. Felix Jones, he played for the Razorbacks, so we'll, we'll throw him in there too, right? Here is... Here is Zacchaeus. He wants to see Jesus. But evidently, you look there at verse 3, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He hasn't had any interaction with Jesus beforehand. But he wants to see him. Why? Why does Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? 
Later in chapter 19, Jesus is going to cleanse the temple for the second time. Remember the first time we're back in John chapter 1, John chapter 2. Second time is going to happen later here in Luke 19. And, and if we place this then in a, in a chronology of Jesus' life, we are near the end of Jesus' earthly life here. He's a known quantity at this point. But Zacchaeus hasn't had this personal interaction with him. He wants to see who Jesus is. But why? And I think if we take a moment just to explore the text around here, we, we can begin to answer that question. Why does he want to see Jesus? Well, uh, again, Zacchaeus is living in the area of Jericho. Jesus has been active in this area in Judea beyond the Jordan. He's been active in this area before we ever get here to the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Ignore what you're going to see up here with this red circle. That's not supposed to be there. Well, if you're wondering why it's there, just ignore it. But you see Jericho, maybe, to the left of the, the circle. You see Jericho. What happened near here? You've got the blessing of the children. Remember when Jesus takes the children and blesses them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven? That happens here in the area of Jericho. You've got the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's here in the area of Jericho. You've got the rich young ruler, Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. That happens here in the area of Jericho. The teaching on wealth happens here in the area of Jericho. And as we mentioned earlier, the healing of Bartimaeus takes place here in the area of Jericho. Matthew 19 and Mark 10 are going to help give us the physical context for this. Uh, stating that these things were not done in Jerusalem, but they were done outside of Jerusalem. And it's going to be Luke chapter 18 and verse 31, uh, speaking of the, uh, the, the story of Bartimaeus, is going to clue us in here, that we're talking about the area of Jericho. I think this goes to explain to us why it is that Zacchaeus is wanting to see Jesus. All of these things have been happening in the area of Jericho. His interest is piqued. Think of some of these things that have been going on. Would some of these things appeal to somebody like Zacchaeus? Somebody who's teaching about wealth? Somebody who's talking about hypocrisy? Somebody who's talking about finding meaning and value and purpose in life? It may not have necessarily been a message on the surface that Zacchaeus would embrace right away, but is that something that might pique his interest? It did, didn't it? Why would he want to see Jesus? You think Zacchaeus is frustrated with his life? You ever been worn down by sin in your life? Or known somebody who's been worn down by sin in their life? Somebody who finally just decides this is not worth it anymore. A life which held such promise hasn't delivered. And I want something meaningful, something real, something of value, something lasting, something more than what I have right now. Do you think maybe that's what Zacchaeus is feeling at this moment? 
And maybe, just maybe, this man Jesus that he's heard about, maybe he can deliver and he can show me something that I haven't seen yet. Maybe he can tell me something I haven't heard yet. Last night, we had a lady come forward to be baptized. It was one of the more untraditional conversion experiences I think I've been a part of. We got an email through our Contact Us link on our website Tuesday morning. She told me her name, said, I'm going to be at Wednesday night Bible study. I want to be saved. I want to know if somebody can baptize me. Preacher's dream, right? Absolutely. Well, we start talking, you know. What's, what's your background? Tell me a little bit about yourself. I said, I was raised in the Catholic Church. I got dissatisfied there. Discovered something about the Church of Christ. And then for 20 years, I just kind of quit with religion. And I found my life has been empty. And I want to come back to God. And she said, I got on the internet. I was looking for churches around San Antonio. I found your website, watched your YouTube videos, read the stuff you had online. I think you guys are teaching the truth. I want to be saved. Will you baptize me? Yes, ma'am. And we did. But it's that kind of attitude right there. The attitude that is looking for something that is missing in life. Zacchaeus was wealthy, and yet he was dissatisfied. And he's looking for something. Maybe Jesus can provide that. So he's going to climb up in that tree. He's going to look for Jesus. And could I submit that just as much as he was looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for him. And so Jesus sees him in that tree, and he calls up to Zacchaeus. He says, I'm going to your house. Come down. Don't be up there. We're, we're, we're apart when you're up there. I need you to come down because I'm going to your house today. Why is Jesus going into the house of Zacchaeus? Why is he going into the house of somebody that everybody in the town says, that guy's a sinner, and not just a sinner, he's a thieving sinner. Why are, why are you going there? You who have opened the eyes of the blind, you who have healed, why are you going there? What's Jesus going to answer? Same thing he's answered all throughout the gospel accounts, right? Verse 10, the Son of Man has come to do what? Seeking to save that which is lost. But where is he going to go? He's going to go where the lost people are. Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to your house. Now think about this with me for a moment. What do you think Zacchaeus and Jesus talked about? You ever thought about that before? Some of those interactions in Scripture that, that we don't have all of the details recorded for us in Scripture, but we just naturally wonder about, right? What did Jesus and Zacchaeus talk about? And we'll never be able to take our finger and place it on any particular passage and say, aha, this is exactly what they talked about. But I've got a couple of ideas. You know, the, 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 one of the first things I think Jesus might have said to Zacchaeus is, thanks for having me in your home. 
And I know that might sound trite and simple, but how many times throughout the New Testament do we read encouragements about being hospitable and just showing kindness, opening up our home, having others in our home, taking care of strangers? 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9 is going to call us to do that. Paul in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. Let's flip over there. He's going to call us to do that, to be hospitable, to look out for the needs of others, to take care of others, just to be kind. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be what? Two sides of that coin, right? We show the hospitality, and then when we are shown hospitality, what do we do? We express our thanks. Could you imagine the Son of God saying thank you? But his gospel would indicate that's the very thing he did, right? Thank you for having me in your home. You think they talked about the difficult people in their lives? Not in a gossiping sort of way. Not in a way to malign anybody or put anybody down or anything like that. Far be it from our, for our Savior to do anything like that. But do we see some similarities between how Zacchaeus is treated and how Jesus was treated? Remember, they, they mumble and groan here about Zacchaeus and Jesus both. He's going in and he's eating at the home of a sinner. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Go back earlier in Luke's gospel account, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 30, we hear something similar being said by the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? And really, the, we know the rest of the story here. The Pharisees and the scribes' gripe isn't so much with the disciples of Jesus as it is with whom? As it is with Jesus, but they don't want to take it up with Jesus. Similar thing going on there in, in Jericho, right? We're going to lambast Zacchaeus instead of asking, well, Jesus, why are you doing this? They both had difficult people to deal with in their lives. You think maybe they talked about that and how to deal with those difficult people? Did you catch what Zacchaeus said over here in verse 8? This is interesting. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times, four times as much. The name Zacchaeus is a Hebrew name. It seems to come from a Hebrew word which means pure. P-U-R-E, pure. Which seems kind of ironic given the circumstances that we have here. But the fact that he would have that sort of given Hebrew name, coupled with what he says here in verse 8, leads me to believe, and coupled with, again, what we're going to see down there in verse 9 as well, that we're dealing with somebody who was a Jew. 
this is somebody who would have had some degree of knowledge of the law of Moses, and he shows that here. When Zacchaeus says there in verse 8, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus is offering here to do more than what the law of Moses required. The law required an additional one-fifth to be paid in cases of fraud. That's from Numbers chapter, chapter 5. But Zacchaeus offers to restore more even than if he had been convicted of the sin, which is what Exodus chapter 22 talks about. That is, you're not dealing with somebody in Zacchaeus who is totally oblivious to the idea of religion. You're dealing with somebody who has some passing understanding of the law of Moses. you think Jesus and Zacchaeus talked any more about the law of Moses? How could they not, right? you think Jesus talked about what the law of Moses was there to do? So Paul talks to, to us about that in the book of Galatians, doesn't he? In Galatians chapter 3. He says in Galatians 3 and verse 23, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which would later be revealed. Therefore, the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You think Jesus talked to Zacchaeus about the law of Moses and what it was really all about? Romans chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law, the righteousness to all those who believe. How could he not, right? Add to that, how could they not talk about wealth? Right, it's the very thing Jesus had talked about just before he has the encounter with Zacchaeus. Back in Luke chapter 18, and in verse 22, Jesus counseling that rich young ruler. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I don't think it's any mistake that Luke is going to give us teaching after teaching after teaching from Jesus about wealth, all to lead us then to this story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Here's the practical example of that teaching being put into play. And I would I'd reckon that they talked about the great power of God, too. Wealth can be a challenge. It can be a hardship. But it's a hardship that can be managed through submitting ourselves to God. After just saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of an eagle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, those who heard it in verse 26 said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things impossible with men are possible with God. 
For somebody who seems to be the, uh, the, the ideal of a sincere seeker, climbing up in a tree wanting to see Jesus, wanting to figure out who he was and what, what all of the clamor about him was about. Here is Zacchaeus learning about Jesus, about the law of Moses, about the challenge of wealth, but then the power of God, which is greater than that. I want in the time that we have left together tonight, I want us to talk about some practical lessons from this story we can take away from ourselves. The first one being this. If we're taking the story of Zacchaeus and applying it to our lives, what do we need to take away here? First one is this. We need to be watchful for interested people. We need to be watchful for interested people. What if Jesus never looks in the tree? But he did, right? We need to be deliberate in looking for people, no matter where they are, no matter what they look like or what their backgrounds are. You've got a short tax collector up in a tree. Perhaps no more unlikely character could be found who would be a candidate to respond to the gospel message. Yet he does. You remember earlier we asked, is Zacchaeus frustrated with his life? And we asked, you think he was ready to change? Aren't those the kind of people we need to be looking for? That's exactly who Jesus looked for. That's exactly who Jesus found. The man perched in a tree ready to make a change. You think that's going to require us getting our hands dirty, so to speak? Generally, who are the people who are ready to make a change in their lives? One of my professors at SFA, and I really enjoyed his classes. In the communication department, one of the statements that he made in our interpersonal crisis communication class that has always stuck with me, people are not going to change until the price of not changing outweighs the price of changing. People aren't going to change until the price of not changing outweighs the price of changing. When it costs too much not to change, that's when we're going to change. Because until that cost becomes too much to bear, we're sitting where we are and we're pretty pleased, aren't we? We're pretty satisfied. We get comfortable. But it's, it's when we get pushed on that, when we get uncomfortable, when things don't necessarily turn out the way that we think they should, that's when we really start thinking about changing. Remind you of the man in Luke chapter 15 Jesus talked about? Earlier, prodigal son, when does he make his change? He makes his change when he's down there slopping the hogs, right? There is a monastery 
in Arkansas. About an hour and a half north of the town I grew up in. I grew up in Conway, Arkansas. About an hour and a half away from there, there is a monastery called Subiaco Monastery. And for some reason, our elementary school teachers thought it would be a great idea for us to take a field trip there. So we took a field trip to the monastery at Subiaco. I don't think third grade Tyler appreciated it as much as 37-year-old Tyler would appreciate it, but that's another story. There is one thing that stuck out to me about the monastery. It's a very self-sufficient community, and they raised some hogs out there. I think they raised the hogs more for garbage control than anything else, though. And I remember they were feeding those hogs. They were slopping those hogs around the time that we were walking, walking by them back there in third grade. And I remember seeing what those hogs were eating. You ever remember going to camp or going to school or something like that, and you'd go through the lunch line, and you'd get your lunch, sit down, and you'd pick through it and find the edible bits, and you'd eat that, leave the rest on your tray, and then you're leaving the cafeteria, and they've got that industrial-sized trash can there that you take your tray and you knock it in before you put it in the, put it in the receptacle to get cleaned, right? And, and that trash can starts to fill up and you, you, you hit your buddy in the rib and say, hey, I'll give you $5 if you stick a spoon down there and take a bite of that, right? Yeah, gross. Uh, yeah, kind of humor we had. It was that that they were slopping the hogs with. That there were other things in there. I distinctly remember jello pudding cups in there and the lids and bits of plastic and styrofoam. And those pigs just ate every bit of that up. Luke chapter 15, can you imagine somebody who's coming from the kind of rich and pleasurable existence that he had, and seemingly as a, as a Jew, now descending to the depths where he is around these unclean animals and he's slopping them. And not only is he slopping them, he would have gladly eaten what he was feeding those hogs. You would have had to pay me a whole lot more than $5 to stick a spoon down in there and take a bite of that. I can't imagine ever thinking, hey, that I'm so hungry, that looks good. And it was when he hit rock bottom when the price of not changing became too heavy that he made his change. I say all that then to get us to this point. If we're looking for interested people, if we're looking for people who are ready to make that change, we're going to have to be looking perhaps in some places that are uncomfortable. But isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth it? Or is the social stigma and the cultural press, is it just too much? Is it not worth it? I think we all know the answer, don't we? It's worth it. We just got to decide we're going to do it. We got to look for those people that are interested. We need to make sure that we don't allow reputation to define people. Luke chapter 19, verse 7, what they say about Zacchaeus? He's a sinner. 
Don't go into his house. Don't be a guest of his. He's a sinner. But what Jesus did, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to your house today. Sometimes reputations are well-deserved. Sometimes they're not. I'm not saying that we just recklessly launch off and associate ourselves with people who are going to be a spiritual detriment to us. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But I am trying to say that sometimes there are people who are unfairly characterized. Either because what they did in the past no longer reflects who they are today, or what they did in the past and maybe what they've continued to do up in the moment is not reflective of the change that they are ready to make in their lives. We need to make sure we don't allow reputations to define people. If Jesus allowed reputations to define people, is this conversation with Zacchaeus ever happening? How many of the conversations that Jesus has all throughout the New Testament are never going to happen if we simply allow reputations to define people? But here's a real practical reason. I don't want reputations to define people because I don't want my prior reputation to define me. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 5 is he is extolling the justification that we find in Jesus Christ through faith. Jesus died for whom? Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, for while we were still helpless, the right time Christ died for the ungodly for hardly will a man die for someone who is righteous though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet what? Sinners Christ died for whom? For us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him for if while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. That's what I used to be. All of us who are Christians, that's who we used to be. That's why we came to Jesus was to leave that behind, to have that forgiven, to have the blood of Christ take that away, to remit it, to send it away. What a shame if we did not allow the mercy that God has shown us to be shown through us to others. Think about this with me then. We need to understand the nature of God's kingdom. This is something subtle that works its way in here to Luke chapter 19. Look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That doesn't say anything about the kingdom of God. Well, you're right. But come back to Luke chapter 18 and verse 24. 
Luke chapter 18 and verse 24. After the interaction with the rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then they said, verse 26, they said what? Jesus has been talking about entering the kingdom of God. It seems they get what Jesus is saying because they ask the question then in verse 26, who can what? Who can be saved? Jesus doesn't rebuke them. Jesus doesn't tell them, no, no, you're missing the point. He says in verse 27, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. It seems as though Jesus gives a stamp of approval that they are understanding exactly what he's trying to say. If we take that there in Luke chapter 18, verses 24 through 27, what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God in that context? It means that I am what? Saved. It means that I'm saved. Carry that forward then. Look at Luke chapter 18, verse 27. The things impossible with men are possible with God. In the sense that Jesus was speaking of it, This kingdom of God was something that preceded eternal life. Verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or child uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So we're talking about entering this kingdom of God at some point before eternal life. It involves serving God. It involves finding the salvation that he offers. That's the nature of the kingdom that we're being called into. It's not a physical kingdom. It's not a nation with a flag and a banner and soldiers who take up literal arms and go to war. It's a spiritual kingdom. Spiritual kingdom that's built upon obedience to God. And a spiritual kingdom that would be refined even more in our understanding of it when Jesus dies and rises from the dead. Look at Colossians chapter 1. You and I can be a part of God's kingdom today. I wouldn't say that we'd enter that kingdom the same way Zacchaeus did. I wouldn't even say that Zacchaeus entered the kingdom in the sense that that Paul's going to talk about it here, but you and I can enter the kingdom of Jesus. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he, God, has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of the Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. That's the kingdom you and I are invited into, the kingdom we can be a part of, the kingdom that was opened by the shedding of the blood of Jesus. But whether we're talking about that kingdom you and I can be a part of today, whether we're talking about God's kingdom in in just the broad sense in which it was being used there in, in Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 19. 
the spiritual kingdom based upon the foundational principle of what? Obedience to God. We need to understand the nature of God's kingdom. I bet that was something Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about. We're almost done here. I appreciate your good attention tonight. Look at Luke chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. Think about this with me. Go be the tree in somebody's life. Here's what we learn about the story of Zacchaeus. We learn we need to be a tree. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. You and I need to be the thing that people use to see Jesus. We need to be the means by which people get a better look, a better view, a better understanding of Jesus. That means we live our lives in such a way that folks can see Jesus living in me. It's what Paul said, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. People need to see Jesus in me. I need to be that tree in somebody's life. I need to live, I need to demonstrate that example of the life of Christ in my own life. Let me show you what else might be involved in this. Look at 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It involves how I live and what people are seeing. It also involves me being able to talk about, to articulate my belief, my faith, and why I choose to believe. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Being able to give a defense, being able to explain, being able to say, this is why I believe, this is why I choose to act this way, this is why I do what I do. Just being able to talk to people. With gentleness, with meekness, with reverence, but being able to talk. This is why I believe. This is why I do what I do. This is why I am what I am. By word, by action, we need to be the tree in somebody's life. We need to remember that we overcome obstacles for the things that we esteem as important. Zacchaeus was short, but it was important for him to see Jesus. There was an obstacle, and he overcame it because there was something out there important that he needed to be a part of. For the things that I view as important, I overcome the obstacle. In the summer of 2002, the FIFA World Cup, I'm a big soccer fan, I know I'm amongst some friends, there, Josh, you're over there in the back, aren't you? FIFA World Cup was being played in South Korea and Japan. They were co-hosts. First game the USA had was against Portugal. We were expected to get throttled. 
We score three goals, I believe it was, in the first half. We end up winning the game three to two. But they were playing in South Korea. I had to get up at 3.30 in the morning to watch that game. I was happy to do it, though. Probably had something to do with the fact that I was 17, but I was happy to do it. We scored that first goal. I go into my parents' room at 4 o'clock in the morning. Dad, we scored. We're ahead. one nothing. Dad goes, I'm getting up. <laughs> Throws the covers off, and he's coming in there to watch with me. I had work that day. It was something important. Not nearly as important as spiritual things, but important. When we esteem something as important, we overcome obstacles. Consider what people had to overcome to hear John the Baptist. They had to travel, and they had to travel a long way. They had to hear a message that wasn't the most uplifting. It's not going to be one we're going to hear on televangelist sermon on Sunday morning. We're flipping through the channels. But people went because they saw that it was important. Consider what the early disciples endured to be together. How many times in those first ten chapters of the book of Acts do we see persecution after persecution after persecution coming upon the church? But what are they still doing? They're still coming together. They're still there for each other. They're still meeting. Why? They viewed it as important. Because they viewed it as important, they made sacrifices to make sure that they were there and to make sure that it happened. If I view something as important, I'm going to overcome obstacles to get there. The other side of that coin is if I don't view it as important, I'm not making the effort. You set down some marinated onion salad before me this week during the gospel meeting. I love you. I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to overcome that obstacle. Right? I will thank you, I will hug your neck, and I will talk to you, and I will spread those around my plate, right? But for things that are important, things that we esteem as important, we overcome obstacles, don't we? How about this last point? We need to grasp the saving power in Jesus' words. Look at chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when he says in verse 9, today's salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. What's Jesus saying? I'm saying you're forgiven. That's a message that means something. That's a message that means something to those of us who are sitting here. That our sin can be taken away, not covered, not hidden, not there, but not really there, but taken away. Removed Old Testament language as far as the East is from the West. Gone. Forgiven. Sent away. Remitted. Sins and lawless deeds remembered no more. Purified. Forgiven. Justified.
when Jesus told Zacchaeus he was forgiven, he was forgiven that. And when the Lord tells us upon meeting his terms of pardon that we're forgiven, we can build our lives on that. We can find peace there. We can find stability. We can find comfort. Today salvation has come to this house because he too, he too was the son of Abraham. That's real, real similar to what we saw in Galatians, 6, Galatians 3, right? You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Put on Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. The forgiveness that Zacchaeus experienced is the forgiveness that you and I can experience too. It comes to the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary. And if you have never come to Jesus Christ in faith, like Paul describes here in Galatians chapter 3, that's the first step you need to make. But in making that step, what he talks about here is exactly what's going to happen. Your sins will be taken away. You will become a child of God. Paul tells us elsewhere, you will raise to walk a new life. A new person, a new creature. That sin is gone. You're forgiven. You're given new life. If that's something that you want tonight, we are ready to help you find that. Maybe as a Christian, you look at your life. You haven't been that tree that the world needs you to be, that the Lord needs you to be. Maybe Jesus hasn't been essential to your life as you know he needs to be and you're ready to make a change. We want to help you make that change. We want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. If there's anything that we can do to help you tonight, you let us know by coming while we stand.